Hi, everybody. Jimmy DeYoung. Welcome to Prophecy Today. I'm in Vestal, New York, and indeed we're here to hold services, prophetic teaching at the Twin Orchard Baptist Church. We begin those services tonight at 6 p.m. all day tomorrow. If you're in this listening area, I'd love to have you come and join us as we study the prophetic word of God. But let me now welcome you to Prophecy Today. We've got a group of broadcast partners standing by all over the world in an effort to be able to help you understand current events in light of the true details behind the headlines, we're going to bring these men to the microphones and discuss some of the issues that are very, very major as we look at prerequisites to setting the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. It's a joy to have you along. Keep the dial set for the next 90 minutes. Information you'll need to know. Let's go to Washington, D.C. The first broadcast partner, Ken Timmerman. And Ken, we've got a lot of things to talk about. Let me get to them right away. I want to talk about the Senate hearings that are taking place for John Brennan to be approved to go to CIA and then Chuck Hagel over at the Defense Department. Now, we don't need to go on a big discussion, but just a first blush. What are you thinking about how these hearings are going, and are these men really qualified for the positions that they've been nominated to take charge of? Well, uh, curiously, the um, controversy over uh, John Brennan, who's up to be the CIA director, has not been coming so much from conservatives or from the right as from liberals who are worried about his involvement as a CIA as the CIA deputy director um, uh, uh, over the past ten years uh, before the Obama administration in um, uh, the interrogation of terrorists. Brennan, I think, acquitted himself fairly well on that, but uh, conservatives are also worried that Brennan has been seeking to redefine the war on terror and to eliminate any mention of Islamic ideology or jihad as the ideology motivating the terrorists. And he's been very specific about this and very persistent. Uh, he, he claims that this would ennoble the terrorists and allow them to wrap themselves in the mantle of Islam. Well, as you and I know, Jimmy, that's what they're doing anyway, and they don't need us to define them. They've already defined themselves. And for a U.S. official in a senior intelligence position to turn a blind eye to that, I think, is uh, irresponsible. And I think uh, Brennan will get uh, questioned over that uh, in the future, but I do believe he will get uh, confirmed. What about Hegel? Do you think he's hit a bump in the road he's not going to be able to get over? Well, Hegel's in a, a different peck of trouble. Uh, first, he had a uh, really disastrous um, confirmation hearing, and uh, he was pretty widely criticized by both parties for his poor performance at, at that hearing. But then he has, he has refused. He has absolutely stonewalled the request by 26 Republican senators uh, for him to, to um, uh, fulfill his requirements of financial disclosure. And they've been asking him specifically, uh, have any of the organizations on whose board he has sat uh, in recent years, uh, have they been receiving money from foreign governments? And this becomes important uh, when you realize that Hegel was on the board of Deutsche Bank. Deutsche Bank was uh, involved in, uh, was in fact accused and had to pay a very stiff fine to the U.S. Treasury for doing um, illegal business in Iran. Um, Hegel's also given a lot of talks to pro-Tehran lobbying groups in, the, in the, uh, Washington, D.C. and elsewhere. And the senators want to know if he's been getting paid for that. More broadly, does he continue to embrace their agenda, which is essentially to whitewash the misdeeds of the Iranian regime and to make a grand bargain with them? 
very interesting developments as we look at the Senate hearings of these two men. Uh, And again, we report this not to be political, but because these are major players in the foreign policy, the military activities, and the uh, intelligence gathering of the United States of America as it plays into whatever's going to be happening around the world. Let's go to Tunisia just a moment. Uh, An Islamist has said the leadership of the Islamic group there, they say there's going to be no new government uh, right at this point in time until the crisis is over, or is it going to continue to grow? They killed one of the leaders. What's up? Well, uh, this is this is uh, going from bad to worse, as they say. The, the uh, ruling Islamist government uh, appears to have been involved, at least they've been accused by uh, the, uh, their opposition uh, in Tunisia of assassinating one of their most outspoken opponents earlier this week at his funeral uh, on Friday. Uh, there are hundreds of thousands of people who are criticizing the government and uh, and accusing them of being uh, assassins. Uh, I think this could bode ill for uh, the Tunisian regime. Um, you know, you had a more or less benevolent dictatorship in Tunisia that was overthrown because of corruption and because of their their outrages against individual Tunisians. Uh, and now what they've got instead is an Islamist regime that's being challenged uh, by some for cracking down on the freedom of non-Islamists, and has been, has been challenged by the Salafists, who are harder line and uh, closely allied with al-Qaeda, for not imposing Sharia law. So they're, they're kind of stuck in between, and I don't think they have a long lifespan ahead of them. Well, let me put a couple of things together now as we change our focus to the Iranians. The Iranian Ayatollah Ali Khomeini, the Supreme Council leader, has rebuffed U.S. offer to have direct talks with the United States. And meanwhile, President Ahmadinejad makes a historic visit into Egypt in an effort to restore the ties. Uh, these ties go back, and you covered this story back in 1979, uh, the Islamic Revolution there in Tehran, Iran. But also it's a time when President Anwar Sadat of Egypt did sign a peace treaty with Israel first peace treaty that Israel had ever signed with anybody. Uh, But now Hamadinejad trying to restore these ties, and this looks like the building of an alliance. Would you not agree? Well, that's his goal, and and he would like to see uh, an alliance between Egypt, which is the largest, the Muslim country with with the largest population in the Middle East, uh, and the Islamic Republic of Iran. It would bring the Sunnis and the Shias together. Uh, But he's having a little problem with this, and he's getting pushback from... uh, uh, the Sunni clerics in uh, Cairo. He's getting a bit of pu- pushback from Morsi as well. And, um, uh, you know, at, at one of these public events that he took part in earlier this week in Cairo, an Egyptian came up to him and threw two shoes in his face. Uh, this is a uh, an insult in Muslim countries. Um, so his reception has not been uh, all as warm as he had hoped it would be. Well, if indeed these two come together, Egypt and Iran, these are major players in the Middle East. This could not bode well for especially Israel, but any type of peace throughout the entire Middle East. Uh, That's correct. Uh, But again, uh, I think sometimes you're blessed by your enemies. And in this particular case, the leadership of the Islamic Republic of Iran uh, verges from buffoonish one day to apocalyptic uh, the next. And uh, you never quite know which it's going to be. Uh, sometimes they can do both on the same day. You had uh, Khamenei, the supreme leader, saying he was going to reject all talks with the United States. There was no point in talking to the United States. 
And then you have Ahmadinejad uh, getting shoes thrown in his face. So you go from the deadly serious to the, uh, to the clownish uh, in, the, in the same day. Ken, you're such a wordsmith from the buffoonish to the apocalyptic. <laughs> that was great. Well, talk to me. Of course, Ahmadinejad was not only there to try to restore ties with the Egyptians, but he was there also to attend the Islamic member states, 57 of them, having a summit there in Cairo with some very important issues on the table. Well, that's right. The organization of the Islamic Conference and uh, uh, top on their agenda was Syria. And uh, this is where uh, you have Iran and the uh, Syrian regime uh, on the one side and just about everybody else in the uh, Muslim world uh, on the other side. And uh, it led to a great deal of friction. Uh, the, and this is, again, where the split uh, uh, appeared between uh, the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood, Mohammed Morsi, the president of Egypt, and the Islamic Republic of Iran. Uh, Morsi has been supporting uh, the opposition in Syria, which includes the Muslim Brotherhood and some of the really hardline Salafist uh, groups. Uh, and the Iranians have been supporting the regime of um, Hafez al-Assad. And this seems to be a, a line of fracture. It's a pretty much a Sunni-Shia divide uh, down the middle of the Muslim world that at least in the coming months and perhaps year or two uh, looks like it's going to become the most important element in the domestic politics in the Muslim world. Ken, talk to me about this organization of Islamic states. Are they a powder puff? Or do they have power? Can they make things happen in the Islamic world? Oh, well, they can make things ha- happen, Jimmy. Uh, don't forget there's Saudi Arabia, who is there right at the center of it. Uh, the Saudis are the pocketbook, uh, if you wish, or the deep pockets of the OIC. Uh, you have Kuwait, you have Qatar, uh, and the United Arab Emirates. Uh, they all have huge amounts of money that they can pour into projects uh, that the group decides to fund. Uh, they have helped the uh, Syrian opposition. Uh, they have helped uh, groups throughout Africa. Uh, if they decide to put their weight behind a particular project, uh, they can throw a lot of money behind it and some diplomatic clout as well. Well, you mentioned Saudi Arabia, and they have been watching very closely this visit by uh, Hamadinejad into Egypt, not only for the attendance there at the summit, but the meeting he had with Morsi. Uh, they're not really excited about these two different leaders getting together, are they? No, the Saudis are very worried about this, and uh, my my guess is that they are doing whatever they can behind the scenes to uh, make it difficult for Ahmadinejad to uh, forge a closer alliance with Morsi. They they also, uh, as we saw when Ahmadinejad went to Al Azhar, the um, uh, the if you wish the Vatican of Sunni Islam in Cairo, uh, the Islamic University there, uh, he was uh, berated by the imams at university uh, for his uh, Shiite beliefs. And they said, you know, you have to be more, more tolerant. Uh, you're suppressing the Sunni minority in Iran, and you're doing these horrible things in, in Syria. So I, I think Ahmadinejad got uh, quite a surprise when he went to Cairo, and, I'm, and I would not be surprised to learn that the Saudis uh, were 
playing this fiddle behind the scenes. Ken Timmerman in Washington, D.C., talking to us about geopolitical activities, helping us to understand really what is going on behind the headlines that we read or the news stories on radio and television. Ken, thank you so very much, my good friend. Have a great weekend. We'll talk next week. Thank you, too, Jimmy. Bye. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, a Middle East news update with David Dolan. He's standing by. That's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. Just how close are we to the rapture of the church? Do events taking place in the Middle East and around the world have prophetic significance? In his latest book, Sound the Trumpets, Jimmy DeYoung examines these questions and explains just how near the rapture of the church could possibly be. By comparing four trends from prophetic scripture to current events taking place in the world today, Jimmy shows that the stage is set. Every actor is in place, and the curtain is about to go up on the end-time scenario set forth in the scriptures. Sound the Trumpets is a must-read for every serious student of Bible prophecy. To order your copy of Jimmy DeYoung's new book, Sound the Trumpets, for only $15, call us today at 8-PROPHECY-8. That's 877-674-3298. Or visit us on the World Wide Web at prophecytoday.com. Call today and make sure to get your copy of Sound the Trumpets. How do you like your news? You know, Jimmy, folks are listening to the news every single day, but sometimes they're getting that liberal bent, and we want them to have a different look at the news. Jay, that's correct. I have listened to ABC, CBS, and NBC when I returned from Jerusalem back to the United States, having just witnessed a news event in the Middle East, and hear the commentators over here speaking something almost different. That's why I write the Until Newsletter, and it takes the leading news stories of the month. I give the absolute truth behind all the details in those headlines, and then we look at it from a prophetic perspective. I want to give you the insight from God's Word as to how the political is setting the stage for the prophetic to be fulfilled. And Jay's going to give you the phone number how you can get your free copy of Until the Prophecy Newsletter. Just give us a call at 8-PROPHECY-8. That's 877-674-3298. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. Snow country would be the way I describe where we are. We were in Scroon Lake yesterday. They had about uh, 9 to 12 inches of snow. That was great for snow camp for those young people coming from all across uh, the northeast into Scroon Lake for snow camp at the Word of Life Bible Institute. By the way, had a great time of teaching the book of Revelation to those young people. They were hungry to study the Word of God, and it was a joy for us to be able to be there. I'll be at the Twin Orchard Baptist Church. As far as I know, things will begin at 6 p.m., unless there's some alert that comes out a bit later. That's this evening we have a service, and then we have services tomorrow starting at 9.15, 15, 10.30, Q&A, and a 6 o'clock service as well. That's the Twin Orchard Baptist Church in Vestal, New York. Not as much snow here, but a lot of snow all across the northeast. Unbelievable. They say it was a history-making snowstorm, and I do believe uh, we had a little 
tinge of it on the outside edges, but uh, it's very interesting. Well, let's get back to looking with our broadcast partners at some of the current events that are unfolding in our world and getting more details behind the headlines. David Dolan has a Middle East news update for us. David, let me get to you right away. Uh, Reports coming out of the Middle East that the region's armies there in the Middle East are on high alert. Now, that's including Syria, Lebanon, and Jordan. I would probably have to say Israel is as well, but the fact is because of that attack on Syria last week, the Lebanese and the Jordanians, uh, they got their militaries ready as well. This does not bode well for existence there in the Middle East, does it? No, it's um, not uh, a good situation at all, Jimmy, but of course it's been building for several years. It's not something that just came out of the blue. And um, the Israelis uh, had warned many, many times uh, the Syrian regime not to transfer any heavy weaponry to Hezbollah in Lebanon, and certainly not chemical weapons. Hillary Clinton mentioned it. President Obama mentioned it. Uh, other world leaders did as well, the French uh, prime minister and others warned the Syrians not to do this, and they were doing it. So um, Netanyahu, a man of his word, uh, a man that doesn't want to see Hezbollah become any stronger than it is, it's already, uh, Jimmy, got the armaments of uh, making it, uh, just this militia force would equal one of the ten biggest armies in the world. That's how heavily armed they are now. And they were transferring um, um, surface-to-air anti-aircraft rockets, uh, Syrian rockets, to Hezbollah. Of course, Israeli airplanes occasionally fly over Hezbollah positions in Lebanon, and the Lebanese are always protesting that, but they're just monitoring what's going on and seeing what they're doing, keeping a close eye on them. Of course, Hezbollah has attacked Israel several times, and of course, in 2006, a full war with over 4,000 rockets fired. So this is a serious issue to the Israelis. They're going to strike again if they see any more weapons flowing, and if the Lebanese or others want to respond, they can do so. The Turks, uh, the Turkish president, Erdogan, he urged uh, the Syrians to respond to that uh, that attack that Israel launched upon uh, that convoy and also a chemical weapons-making facility near Damascus, and the Israelis responded by saying, hey, what hypocrites, you're always bombing Kurdish positions in northern Turkey, and the Syrians have barely responded to that. I mean, in northern Syria, uh, Kurdish positions in Syria. And so, you know, if Israel feels threatened by something going on, they feel they have the right to take action. And if it leads to a fuller war, it does. But the things are on full alert. I've just been in touch with an Israeli friend who's high up in military intelligence, and they are also preparing for the possibility of a much wider conflict. This everything heating up in the Middle East. Well, in fact, this last week there in Cairo, the Islamic Summit meeting, the Organization of Islamic States coming together, 57 different member states, the leaders of Hamas and Fatah went over. They met with Hamadanijad, who was there as well at this summit, and now they've come out talking unity. They continue to talk unity. If they get together, it's going to be tough as far as the Israelis are concerned. Will it not be? Oh, for sure. Uh, Hamas is uh, clearly completely opposed to the peace process, uh, wants nothing to do with Israel, doesn't want to hold any even indirect talks with Israel, certainly doesn't want to cooperate with the Israelis in a military fashion, which um, the uh, Fatah party, the uh, Palestinian Authority, has 
done to a limited degree, but still they have done. In fact, they conducted some joint raids a couple weeks ago on some Hamas positions in Hebron and other places. So uh, the fact that they're cozying together is not a good sign because it will not mean that the more moderate Fatah or Palestinian Authority will moderate Hamas but that Hamas's much harder line positions will become the mainline positions, meaning the end of the peace process. Well, peace process hasn't been going very far anyway, and frankly, Benjamin Netanyahu and all other Israeli leaders are far more concerned about what's going on in Syria, what's going on in Lebanon, and certainly what's going on in Iran with the nuclear program than they are making peace at this time with the Palestinians. So it's, it's more of an irritant than anything else. But the fact that Abbas met with Ahmadinejad is uh, historic, and it really signals that they are hardening their positions, becoming more and more anti-Israel, and um, that doesn't bode uh, well for the future. Now, David, you brought up the peace process, and uh, we all say that it's not going any place right now. However, the newly sworn-in Secretary of State, John Kerry, is on his way to Israel. He's going to meet with Netanyahu. He'll meet with Abbas, the leader of the Palestinian Authority. I don't know who else he's going to meet with. And then in March, we have word that President Obama will make his first official visit as president into Israel. And the Palestinians are already saying that they hope that either the Secretary of State or the president brings a new peace policy, a new Middle East idea of how to put it together. You think that is at all a possibility, or is it just going to be a nice little visit? I think they'll probably bring some new proposal. Uh, President Obama has been criticized by many in his own party for uh, not paying enough attention to the Middle East, and particularly to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, so they may well bring something. But again, the time is not ripe. Uh, the, the Palestinian Authority is becoming harder in its positions, is moving closer to Hamas, is moving closer to Iran. Um, Syria is falling apart to the north of Israel. So uh, any peace proposal will be just uh, something to photograph and put on the table, and such as the conference that the president sponsored uh, two and a half years ago in Washington. He brought Abbas, he brought Netanyahu and others together, and it led to nothing because, again, the Palestinian Authority demanded that before any talks can begin, Israel must stop building everything, including in East Jerusalem, in the, the Jewish suburbs around Jerusalem, in all the other settlements, and uh, that, of course, President um, uh, Netanyahu did order a building freeze everywhere but in Jerusalem, and that was not enough for Abbas, so they never did get to talking peace. Now, with the coalition building going on, Prime Minister Netanyahu endeavoring to put together a coalition government made up of uh, some of the parties of the 12 that are eligible to be in the coalition, he has sent a signal. He made a statement. His office issued the statement that there will be no change in his settlement policy. And I believe right uh, just before, right after his election, he gave the order to go ahead and start a building there in the eastern section of the city of Jerusalem and also some permits to build out in the Jewish settlements. Not expanding necessarily the settlements, but building within the borders of these settlements to take care of the present needs for those living there. I mean, this sounds like it's a signal to the president and the secretary of state. Uh, Israel is not going to change its policy. Well, he won't be able to form a viable government if he uh, gives way on that issue. Um, he certainly needs um, uh, Naftali Bennett's new party, uh, which is a, a right-wing party, uh, strongly supported uh, by the settlers. Most of them voted for it. Uh, by the way, that uh, coalition uh, uh, parlay is going not very well because Bennett 
was Prime Minister Netanyahu's chief of staff until three years ago, and he fell out with him uh, after many arguments with uh, the Prime Minister's wife, Sarah. So uh, the leader of this party he needs in his coalition uh, does not at all get along with the Prime Minister's wife, and apparently it's such a bitter dispute that it is coming up in these negotiations for uh, building a coalition. So it would be ironic if that uh, were to uh, stop the formation of a new government, but um, uh, we're watching it real closely. But it is uh, necessary to have that party in the government, and to do so, there's no way he can budge on his current uh, building, um, 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 you know, position, and he won't do so. Just a quick brief answer, if you will, with the fact that the Palestinians say if you're going to continue building in the Jewish settlements, President of the United States saying stop that building out there in the Jewish settlements, Netanyahu saying we're going ahead. Is there any chance the peace process will any time get back on track in the near future? Well, uh, no, but there is no chance, I don't see. But, but again, I think it has more to do with the Palestinian Authority moving closer to Hamas, to Iran, to Hezbollah, to these radical uh, forces, and the, and the reality, Jimmy, that we are probably going to face a war this year. It really looks likely, and, you know, I don't say that lightly, uh, but it really does look so. So I, I don't see anything going on in the peace process anytime soon. David Dolan with our Middle East News Update. Longtime journalist in Jerusalem, over 30 years' experience, helps him to come to the table with information that we need to know. And if you eavesdrop on this conversation, you will learn something and better understand what's happening in the Middle East and as it is setting the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. David, thank you so very much, my friend. We appreciate it. Talk again next week. Thank you, Jimmy. God bless. We're going to take a break. When we come back, Colonel Bob McGinnis from Washington going to talk about Israel being brought into the Syrian situation by the Israelis. That's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. Prophecy Today is heard all across the USA on the Prophecy Today radio network, but also it is heard around the world through our website at prophecytoday.com. And Jay, there are many other features on our prophecytoday.com website, like daily news updated out of the Middle East as it pertains to what's happening prophetically. Special reports can be heard right on our website at prophecytoday.com. We have Prophecy Q&A available for you. Questions asked in the past can be answered on the website if you just check it out and go to that particular spot. Prophecy Quiz is available, and parts of our Prophecy Today program, if you should miss any part of it, will be heard the next week right here at prophecytoday.com. And don't forget, you can even email your questions to us for our live radio broadcast. Just go to our website at prophecytoday.com. You'll be amazed, you'll be surprised at what you'll find on our website. Be sure to visit us at prophecytoday.com on the World Wide Web. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. Jimmy DeYoung right here in Vestal, New York. We're here for a meeting at the Twin Orchards Baptist Church. Love to have you come and join with us in the activities taking place there. We'll study God's prophetic word. It's going to be a great time of study, so please do come along and join us. Colonel Bob McGinnis is standing by in the Washington, D.C. area. We're going to talk to him about an article that he has written. In fact, it's our guest editorial that's on our homepage. It's entitled, Will Israeli Attack Bring United States into Syrian Fray? 
And this is something that you need to read. It's a must-read. Go to our website, prophecytoday.com. It's right there on the home page, and read what Bob has written. And, uh, Bob, I just could not let this pass by. I needed to talk with you about it. I want people to read it. Very interesting thoughts you have. Actually, first of all, tell us what happened so everybody's on the same page with that, and then we'll get into the discussion. Well, you had an Israeli attack into Syria uh, to bomb what would appear to be a couple of targets. And keep in mind, there were three sorties of um, Israeli F-16s that loggered uh, in that southern Lebanon and the western part of Syria for you know, a good part of 12 hours. So they were looking for not only stationary targets, but also moving targets. And they appeared to have hit two targets, uh, one, at least one truck of SA-17 ground-to-air missiles, which are made by the Russians, and uh, a, a very serious threat if they landed it in the hands of Hezbollah. And then the second one happens to be a facility, which has been well-known by the intelligence community for many years, as sort of the epicenter for where they do biological and chemical weapon research. And there's also happens to be a storage site there where they keep all the bio and chemical defensive equipment. So it's a very interesting location. Well, then go into why, and you write this, of course, in your article, but again, we're interviewing you, so I want you to bring out some of these points. Why do you think that the United States has vital interest in this Syrian civil war? Or do they? Well, well, they do. And, of course, I, I list them in the article. You know, First of all, yeah, Iran is our nemesis, and Iran is the primary sponsor for Assad, as well as for Hezbollah, which they've stood up back in 1982. Uh, then, of course, uh, the whole issue of proliferation of weapons of mass destruction, uh, which Syria has plenty. What we don't want to see is they lose control of those weapons, and they spread like the Libyan arsenals did all over North Africa. These could spread elsewhere in the Middle East, and that's what Jordan and Lebanon and Turkey are especially concerned about. Uh, certainly the, the killing, uh, there have been a loss of life in Syria, which is devastating, at least 60,000, of course, hundreds of thousands of people uh, have been displaced internally and externally. And, and so those are important, uh, and of course we want to try to leverage the future uh, government there in Damascus. Uh, once. Assad is gone, and I do believe that he will at some future point. He'll be gone because of the fact that there's no way he can sustain his leadership role? Yeah, I don't think so at this juncture. Uh, of course, it, uh, miracles in the opposite direction can happen. Uh, you know, Assad, you know, his throwing everything he has short of his chemicals at his enemies at this point. But, of course, you have jihadists from all over the the Middle East that are pouring in to fight on the rebel side. So there are all sorts of issues there that you know, make this complex. But I, I don't really believe that Assad, uh, short of Iran coming in and Russia coming to his aid any more than they have, uh, is necessarily going to survive. Well, when we think about this, has the civil war come to a tipping point as it relates to what's going on? And should then the United States really get involved in this civil war? Well, certainly the administration is talking about that now more so than they have in the past in terms of arming the rebels more. Uh, of course, we've already placed uh, Patriot missiles in Turkey. Uh, we have, uh, according to press reports, personnel working with the Jordanians in the north. Uh, 
tracking uh, you know various elements, especially with uh, a focus on what's happening to Assad's chemical and biological weapon systems. And I know, obviously, the Israelis are watching from overhead and through various other means everything that they're doing. So I do believe that we're involved. I believe we're going to get more involved uh, just out of necessity for the very reasons that I outlined earlier. Well, and then what my question has to be, you know, NATO came and looked at it. The United Nations came and looked at the situation. Uh, Now the United States is uh, looking at it from afar. Israel made the first step of any of the Western countries, uh, i.e. Israel, a part of that conglomerate. Why has everybody been so hesitant and waited so long? We're two years plus into this civil war. It has gone on since March of 11, and that's uh, disastrous for the Assyrian people and, of course, for the entire region. The Obama administration after Libya just didn't want to get entangled in another ground war in the Mideast. And obviously, you know, Assad had a different opinion as he fought back against the rebels, and so did they. Uh, so it would appear, though, that uh, because of our strategic interests, we will do what we must do uh, to bring this to a, a quick solution. Um, of course, the Russians, I think, have grudgingly recognized that to a certain degree. And of course, Ahmadinejad from Iran was down there talking to President Morsi in Egypt this past week uh, about this very issue. Um, They have different agendas, different sides that they're favoring, but I think everyone would like to see this brought to a quick end. And uh, we can work out uh, a future government, of course, I'm very skeptical about what that government might look like. Yeah, I was just going to ask you, are we going to be better off with a new government made up of this opposition conglomerate of all types of terrorist groups, or would we be better off with Bashar Assad? Well, Assad, of course, uh, is predictable. Uh, the Islamists that are aligned uh, with the rebels, they, they're they the ones that have been doing uh, most of the, the best fighting uh, based upon battlefield reports, so... So you have that mixture in there. I, I would be very surprised if uh, if they're as calm and as peaceful uh, as what's happened in Egypt in comparison, perhaps, to uh, what could happen. And I, I'm fearful that it could be something like a Mali or, uh, and of course, Libya is still very unsettled and not what uh, the Obama administration and many in NATO had anticipated it would become. Yeah. yeah, well, it's a hot spot. It's an ongoing story, and we'll stay on top of it with Colonel Bob McGinnis. Bob, thank you so very much, my good friend. Appreciate your insight. Thank you, Jimmy. Let me remind you once again that we have the guest editorial of which our focus on the interview with Bob McGinnis was all about. On our website, it's on the home page. Go there. You'll see it. It's entitled, Will the Israeli Attack Brain the United States into the Syrian fray. And Bob had some very interesting thoughts there. And in fact, the bottom line uh, is that the United States better get involved for their own reasons, but in addition to that, to stand with the best friend that uh, the United States has in the Middle East, and that's the nation of Israel. Well, speaking of Israel, Israel Madad is his proper name. We call him Winky. He's a regular broadcast partner right here on Prophecy Today. And Winky, thanks so much for being available. Very interesting discussion we're going to have. I read a report that uh, 
the debate had been decided where the European Jews came from. What was the origin of the European Jews? Now, those eavesdropping on this conversation, we may not even understand what the discussion is all about. Let me just begin by doing this. In Israel, there are two groups of Jewish people. There are the Ashkenazi and there are the Sephardic Jews. First of all, take a moment, give us a 101 class on the Israeli society. Who are the Ashkenazi Jews? Who are the Sephardic Jews? Well, Jimmy, uh, that's a uh, two-tiered answer. In uh, Jewish custom, religious uh, ritual is slightly different for those who are called Sephardim, which is the Hebrew word for Spain, and so it refers to those Jews who are basically, uh, we can call them the Mediterranean Basin. We're talking about uh, Spain, Portugal, Turkey, Italy, and of course the northern African part of the continent, and extending into Iran, Iraq, uh, Afghanistan. And then there's the Ashkenazi Jews, who have a slightly different, as I said, custom, and they basically are European When you talk about the Ashkenazi Jew now, that would be those Jews coming out of Europe, out of Russia. They are the basic part of the the Jews that uh, would be the Hasidic Jew coming from the different uh, Jewish sects there in Europe as such. But what does that mean? This report that was published uh, there in Israel is basically saying that they are not Jewish in origin. In other words, uh, they are some converts to Judaism. Going back 2,000 years ago, when the Jews were scattered to the four corners of the earth in 70 AD, those were all Jews that went out. Now, what are they talking about in this report? And I have some, and the reason I'm discussing this with you, Winky, I have so many people that even in churches have an anti Semitic and they want to say that the Jews back in the land now are not really Jews, they're simply converts. So what is this report talking about? Give me some real insight on this. Well, the first uh, insight I can give you, Jimmy, comes from the Bible. The great-great-grandmother of uh, King David was a convert. So the idea uh, that for some reason Jews are basically a in the old sense of the term, a certain race with a very specific genetic makeup, which would have them with a certain color of hair and a certain facial features uh, of some nature, is just hogwash, if I can use the term, and is usually used by anti-Semites to a very large extent. You have been uh, to Israel, you see Jews, all colors, all sizes, all heights, a different type of hair, not only colors, but whatever it is like that, because we have been a people that has been expelled from the homeland. But the idea that uh, we only accept people who have a specific genetic code is quite wrong because our basis of our ethnicity is the commands uh, and the visions coming out of the Bible. And for that, it's open to the entire world. So that over the years, not only have we been a special people in terms of, I'd even use the word clannish to a certain extent, but also a people that has had people come into it from all nations and all types of peoples wherever we have been. So that in that sense, even today, 
We have Ethiopian Jews coming from Ethiopia who uh, are very, very dark and very Negroid in their appearances. And we have Russians who are very blonde uh, and, and very tall. And, uh, and the, that's not the issue. These people are, are trying to use uh, a certain type, as you said, a certain type of code disguised as scientific fact, which really isn't true. You know, I like the biblical basis upon which you answered that question. You go back to Ruth. She was a Gentile. And, of course, she was uh, the uh, grandmother of King David. So, indeed, a very, very important piece of information we have to put into the whole discussion. Uh, you think, then, the, the discussion is really, uh, from a anti-Semite's point of view, they're trying to say that God didn't choose a people and whether they come with a, in fact, was not Abraham a Gentile. He came from Ur of the Chaldees. And so uh, they basically are all converts coming from Abraham and coming from Ruth. Uh, the, the, the Bible says that Abraham went about trying to convince people into the belief of, of one God in monotheism. So where did he get his original members of his Hebraic covenantal faith. It came from outside his family, and outside his family was definitely not Jewish in that sense that we know it today. Not only that, of course, but most of these studies that are done, and I tried to look up some of the more scientific-based criticisms, is that uh, these people are not geneticists, and uh, they're basing themselves on a Stalinist communist by the name of Professor Shlomo Zand, and Arthur Kessler, who about 40 years ago wrote a book on the 13th tribe trying to prove without any sort of academic background or, or credentials uh, this idea that Jews, or at least the Ashkenazi Jews, sprung out from the uh, so-called Khazars uh, north of the Caspian Sea in South Russia. Uh, people have always gotten very excited about conspiracy theories and weird ideas that sometimes you can't really disprove because they're not true in the first place, so it's very difficult to disprove them. But that's the way people are, and we have to answer those questions as best we can. I think you brought up another very interesting point. There is no prototype for what a Jewish person looks like. We did some television production from the Diaspora Museum down near Tel Aviv, and they had pictures of Jews from all over the world. And I'm telling you, there's no way that you could say, hey, there's just one type of an individual with this type of a look that is Jewish. It's a people that uh, God has brought into existence, a special people. In fact, uh, what I love about the scriptures over there in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 7, he said that, look, I chose you, and he said, I chose you not because you were the greatest in number, and I think there's about 13 million Jews in our world today. He said, uh, you were the fewest in number, but I chose you for a certain purpose. And he said, I chose you because I love you. My grace, he chose a people, his people, and he has a special purpose for these Jewish people, doesn't he, Winky? Absolutely. The prophets also say that at the time of the return, I will bring you from the north and the south and all over. And it's obvious that uh, our approach to the worship of the divine being and the commitment to being a better ethical and moral man can be appealing to anybody. And uh, although Jews usually do not proselytize in the strict sense of that, we are open, and uh, there is a process 
We are not. We don't reject anybody because of of their race, of their color, of of, of where their background. And I think that's one good thing about the Jews, which reaches out to all mankind and and the state of Israel as the homeland for the ingathering, as the Bible tells us. Well, the Bible is absolute on that fact that He's going to reach out to four corners of the earth, and we have been watching that unfold for the last almost 100 years. Amazing how these prophecies of the ancient Jewish prophet are now coming to pass as we watch everything unfolding in Israel. Winky, thank you so very much for insight. This discussion has been going on, and I'm trying to nip it in the bud, especially among those in the Christian community who are not knowledgeable of really what the truth is. I wanted to have your insight on this. Thank you very much, my good friend. We'll talk again soon down the line. Jimmy, thank you very much, and goodbye to you and our listeners. Very interesting conversation with Winky Madad. You know, this is a discussion that goes on mainly among Christians and those who have a anti-Semitic tendency. Hope this will assist you in understanding that. Well, look who walked into the studio Jim Jr. Hey, Jim. How you doing, buddy? <laughs> Pretty good, Dad. How are you doing? I'm looking forward to hearing this conversation that you're going to have with Kenny, who is our chief guide in Israel. Now, I think we ought to talk about the situation. Everybody's concerned about what's happening there. But I believe that uh, people, if they'll listen to this conversation that you and Kenny have, you're going to be willing to join us on our trip to Israel. So, Jim, take it away, if you will. Let's talk with Kenny. I'm talking to my good friend Kenny Guerin in Israel. He's our guide on our trips to Israel. Kenny, as a guide, what is your goal when you bring people to Israel? What do you want to convey to them? Well, uh, ideally, we strive for the ultimate, a life-changing trip for them to experience while they're here. Uh, Jimmy, uh, as I'm always fond of saying, I do believe uh, we Israeli tour guides are in a unique position. In, uh, we're the only tour guides in the world, in my opinion, that uh, very seldom, hardly ever, actually deal with tourists, but rather people who are coming looking for a religious, spiritual experience. And this is where we come from. It's very exciting uh, to be a part of that. And it very often does turn out to be a, a life-changing uh, trip. Certainly, our people, after a visit to the land of the Bible, do not look at the Bible ever again in the same way. But uh, it increases the depth of their understanding uh, of the Bible. Some biblical uh, scholars refer to a visit to the land of Israel as a so-called fit gospel, help increasing uh, the faith uh, in the four uh, gospels. Uh, so that's in one sense. Another sense is, in a very uh, modest way, we are uh, representatives of our country. And Israel is truly the center of the world. It's all happening here. It all originated here. And all of this is uh, part and parcel of uh, the package tour uh, to Israel. Now, we've we've been involved with doing tours for several years. Um, what is... Uh, what's the mood in the land of Israel this year? I know that we have seen on the news people are a little cautious about going. Have you seen the things that are happening there in the Mideast? Has it affected tourism to Israel this year? Uh, yes and no. That is to say, on the no part, the numbers are, are just coming in. And this past year, uh, 2012, 
was a record-breaking year for tourism, over three and a half uh, million. So, um, you know, the numbers do uh, talk. But what I think you're referring to, Jimmy, in terms of people hesitating, it's, it's more the American uh, crowd. And to those of you that hesitate, uh, those of you in the States that are hesitating about coming, I can just suggest take your cue from the rest of the world that their numbers are only increasing and have year after year. You have to remind yourself, sensational journalism, that's what sells newspapers. And, you know, don't buy into any of that. And, and, and certainly don't watch CNN. We are aware of, you know, the dramatic headlines and, and you know, all the talk of uh, doomsday. But it doesn't fool the Israeli public. And it really shouldn't, uh, you really shouldn't let yourself be uh, influenced by that as well. Yes, I often we're asked that question, is it safe to go to Israel? And I always tell people, as long as we get you through New York City, you'll be just fine in the land of Israel. <laughs> Well, you know, Jimmy, as a tour guide, I'm always asked that question, is it safe? And uh, the, uh, the most honest answer is also the most simplest answer. We here in Israel don't even use that terminology of safe. Safe is a given. Uh, that's granted. What you really should be asking yourself, is it responsible on my part in uh, coming to Israel? And the answer is definitely 100% yes. We don't do anything that's irresponsible. You know, like take you to the problematic areas. We go nowhere near those places. Uh, you know, the, uh, the way the guides break it down is itinerary on these tours, the sites. And the question you could, uh, could ask is, is it the degrees of uh, responsibility? Is it a place that you would take your group? Is it a place that you would go with your, with your family? Is it a place that you would only go on your own? And the bottom line is all of the sites and all of the itineraries are places that we would go with our family, with our children, mm. which is, you know, the utmost responsibility. But the question of safe and unsafe, it's a non-issue. Everything is safe. Everything is responsible. Is now a good time to go to Israel? Now? You mean uh, you got your backpack, Jimmy? You're ready to come over? Yeah, now's an excellent time to come. Well, this year, this spring, or, or the, the 2013 season. Uh, yes, I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah, everything is in order. Everything, In other words, we have been building year after year. Uh, the foundation for tourism there, and more uh, uh, hotel rooms in uh, Tiberias and Jerusalem. Sites are being uh, upgraded and in the world of archaeology, new discoveries. Yes, indeed. The time is now. Kenny, if we have a friend that's looking at going to Israel, trying to make that decision to make the trip of a lifetime, what spiritually can they expect and how should that affect their decision-making process? Well, Jimmy, I'm assuming that most of the people that consider coming to Israel are people that, uh, for the vast majority of their life, have been reading their Bible back home. Reading your Bible back home and not in the land of the Bible, that's been compared to, oh, like watching television without the sound on or something like that. The authors of the Bible, they do not explain anything about the land, the geography, the, uh, the layout of the land, the weather, the climate, the, the, the agriculture, the, the, the language, the customs, the culture. They're just assuming that the readers of the Bible will be more than familiar with that. And that's not the case today. 
So it's imperative that you come to Israel in order to begin to comprehend all of these things from the Bible. You can't gain that insight into the Bible and, and the ability to put in perspective all of the prophecy expressed in the Bible until you come first to Israel. And uh, it's a shame to postpone it uh, any longer. Set a date now. If you don't set a date, uh, it's not going to happen. Put it in motion. That's what I always say. Kenny, what would be, if you were trying to make a decision, and I, and I know that you want people to come now as soon as they can, as do we, but if they had, if they are trying to make a decision, which is better, the spring or the fall, to come on a trip? Well, that's a toss-up, uh, Jimmy. Uh, certainly in terms of weather, it's a toss-up. You know, the spring is with all the countryside uh, green, uh, all of our rivers and, and uh, the Sea of Galilee uh, filled with uh, water, the blooming uh, wildflowers, the, the Sea of Yellow, the colored flowers, and followed by the red. This is, uh, this is a typical spring day. Together with that, you've got fall. That's our Indian summer days as well. So it's not by chance that these are uh, our high seasons. It's, uh, it's the best weather. So it's a personal decision. Uh, whenever it's more convenient for you to come, that's the time to come. Uh, but it's no secret. It's year-round touring here in Israel, including uh, the long, hot summer months. Uh, I mean, it, it is hot, but sometimes that's only when people get vacations. But, yeah, you've narrowed it down. The, the high season, and this is a function of the, uh, the weather, is uh, spring and fall. Oh, we're so looking forward to being there. Kenny, thank you so much for talking to us about Israel, and we hope to do this again sometime, and we'll get a little bit more of the flavor of our trips as we come to Israel. We'll look forward to seeing you in the springtime. Okay, Jimmy, always a pleasure to, to hear from you, and maybe we can pass on a little bit of the, the sights, the sounds, the smells of the land of Israel, the land of the Bible. Shalom, shalom. Shalom, shalom to you, Jimmy. All the best. God bless. Jim, that was a great conversation, and I so appreciate you spending some time with Kenny Karan. Uh, it sounds like we could go to Israel. We're going to have a neat trip. Would you like to have everybody come along and go with us? Oh, Dad, I'd love to have everybody go along. You know, if they've only been reading the Bible and they haven't been to Israel, it's like reading it in black and white. <laughs> and they can read it in Technicolor when they're there in the land. Well, if you'd like information about our tour, go to our website, prophecytoday.com. Go to Joshua Travel. It'll give you the dates, the cost, the itinerary, everything you need to know, and come and go along with us. Well, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, Jim's going to continue to stay in the studio with me. We're going to answer some of your questions. We're going to spend some time doing Prophecy Q&A. That's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. Hi, everybody. Jimmy DeYoung. Thank you so much for listening to Prophecy Today. We're grateful that you have an opportunity to look at current events in light of biblical prophecy with us. We're going to take a five-minute break for news at the top of the hour. And when we come back, we're going to have Prophecy Q&A. You can interact with us, 877-674-3298, a toll-free number from all across America. Love to have you contact us right here at Prophecy Today. <music> Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung. We're here in Vestal, New York. This is the location of the Twin Orchard Baptist Church. 
We're going to join with those fine folk over there for a study of Bible prophecy. Tonight, we have a session. It starts at 6 o'clock, and then three or four sessions tomorrow. We'll tell you more about it, but I need you to get excited about studying Bible prophecy. And if you're in the Vestal, New York area, be sure to make your way over tonight at 6 o'clock at Twin Orchards Baptist Church. Well, we're so happy to have you along. Jimmy Jr. is standing by. Jim, you got some questions from some of our friends across the countryside? Do I have questions, Dad? About, we get about probably about 50 to 60 questions a week, so I've got some questions for you. Well, I am looking forward to answering those questions. Before we get to Q&A, let me give you the poll question. You can go to our website, prophecytoday.com. On the left-hand side, you can scroll down, and there you will find the poll question. I would love for you to answer the poll question. It helps us kind of get a reading on what we are doing. Are we communicating properly on this broadcast? We can tell that by your answer. So go answer my poll question. It's the website, prophecytoday.com. Here's the question. This week, the leaders of 57 Islamic states met in Cairo, Egypt for a summit. They discussed many issues, including the Jewish state of Israel. Bible prophecy in Ezekiel chapter 38, Daniel 11, and Psalm 83 reveals that these nations will attack Israel in the last days. Now, here's the question. Could this summit that took place in Egypt be a part of the stage setting for these prophecies to be fulfilled? We'd love to have you respond to that poll question. Again, the address, prophecytoday.com. Now, Jim, I've got to just take a moment before we get to Q&A to talk about PASS. Let me tell everybody what PASS is all about. PASS is an acronym for a prophetic army of senior saints. We understand that the local churches are not teaching Bible prophecy. I'm not sure if it's the fact that the pastors don't understand Bible prophecy or for what reason they're just not teaching it. So we're going to raise up an army of senior saints who will study Bible prophecy, learn it well enough to get involved in teaching Bible prophecy, and do that by starting neighborhood Bible studies or teaching a Sunday school class. You can become a member of PASS. You simply go to our website, prophecytoday.com. On the right-hand side, you will see the insignia PASS, P-A-S-S. You double-click on that, it'll give you all the information. We'd love to have you come. And in fact, if you will come now, we will give you the first course in PASS absolutely free. Go to the website, prophecytoday.com. Okay, Jim, let's go to Prophecy Q&A. Cynthia Blackman sends in a question. She says, I'm following your chronology for reading, studying the book of Revelation. I'm uncertain as to where to insert the chapters 4, 5, 10, 12, 13, and 15. Could you please advise me? Cynthia, let me just suggest that in my book, Revelation and Chronology, we lay all of this out. So if you don't have a copy of that, Might I suggest you get a copy of it? But now let me come back and answer your question for you. Chapters 4 and 5 are in the chronological order there to be. Chapters 1 through 6 are chronologically correct. Chapter 4, verse 1, is the rapture of the church. Remember, chapters 2 and 3 would be the churches in operation at the time that John wrote the book, but also representing periods of church history. And immediately we find out in chapter 4 and verse 1 that the church period is over. He says, after this, the first two words, they're in chapter 4 and verse 1 of Revelation. In chapter 4, verse 1 is the rapture of the church. Chapter 4, verse 2, you'll see that John is in the heavenlies. 
By the way, this is an interesting window that everybody has to look into the heavenlies. Uh, Chapter 5, verse 1 says, the one on the throne, and you look ahead and read those next couple of verses, you'll see that it's God the Father on the throne. Jesus Christ is the one who comes and takes the sealed book out of his hand. So chapters 4 and 5 are in the proper chronological order between chapters 3 and 6. And it's just simply telling us what happens to John at the rapture and depicting the rapture. He goes into the heavenlies and he sees what is going to unfold after that time. Chapter 5 concludes, the seal book is in the hand of Jesus Christ. In chapter 6, verse 1, and I saw the lamb open the seal, the first seal, and the man on a white horse comes first. So that chronologically is correct. Chapter 10, I'm not going to take them necessarily in the order you gave us and ask us about, but I'm going to put them in chronological order the best I can for you now. Chapter 10 is a parenthetical chapter in the book of Revelation. There's not a definite chronological order, but it should come before the seventh trumpet judgment. It's after the second woe, and now the third woe will be coming. Uh, So there in chapter 11, verse 14, uh, that is talking about the end of the second wall, the third wall ready to come. That's where you would drop in chapter 10. It's parenthetical, but you would drop it in right there. Then instead of going to 12, I'm going to go to 13. Chapter 13 is the most detailed information, Cynthia, about the Antichrist. The Antichrist is talked about in the entire chapter, but chapter 13, verses 1 to 13 would be the release of that first sealed judgment. Chapter 6 and verse 1, Jesus Christ opens that first of the sealed judgments. And in verse 2, a man on a white horse comes forth, crown on his head, bow in his hand, uh, no arrows. He comes forth to conquer. And this is the Antichrist who appears, and he brings about a peace, albeit it's a pseudo-peace. That's the beginning of it. But if you want more details about the Antichrist, then at that point, after you've read chapter 6 of Revelation, verses 1 and 2. You go to chapter 13, verses 1 to 3. I know this is pretty detailed, but I'm trying to help you. If you're going to be teaching this, you need to know it. So chapter 13, verses 1 to 13, uh, will uh, go along with chapter 6, verses 1 and 2 in the beginning of the tribulation period. Now, those other uh, verses in chapter 13, chapter 13, verses 14 to 18, they would happen at the midway point. As you read them, you'll see that uh, the false prophet is going to make an image of the beast. Well, that doesn't happen until the midway point, and it follows chapter 17, verses 16 and 17. Chapter 17, verses 16 and 17 is the destruction of the false church. That's uh, chapter 17 in Revelation. That's the first three and a half years. And then the Antichrist gives the order to the revived Roman Empire to wipe out this false church. And at that same point in time, it talks about then Antichrist going to Jerusalem, walking into the temple, desecrates the temple. And at that point, they put an image of the beast, and that's what it's talked about there in chapter 13 in Revelation, verses 14 to 18. You come then to chapter 12, and that's talking about a battle in the heavenlies, uh, starting there in verse 7 through uh, verse 17 of chapter 12. Michael the archangel leading the good angels. He's the commander-in-chief of the good angels. The Lord tells him to take Satan, throw him out of the 
heavens and down to the earth. And when that happens, the Antichrist and all of his compatriots do everything they possibly can. Satan will be cast down at that time. All those evil angels that committed sexual relationship with human women to bring about the flood back in chapter 6 of the book of Genesis, they'll be released from the bottomless pit. And all these evil angels on the earth trying to wipe out the Jewish people, thus God would fail. That would be chapter 12. It happens at the midway point of the tribulation. Again, chapter 15 is another parenthetical chapter that you look at, and you need to place that at the end of the seventh trumpet judgment. That would be chapter 11. And before this first vile judgment, that would be chapter 16. Sorry to have to go into this so detailed, but Cynthia, that's the way we had to do it. And those of you eavesdropping on the conversation, let me just suggest uh, if you didn't get that, you can listen to it again and maybe it'll help you. But go get my book, uh, Revelation of Chronology. It'll help you. It's all laid out in there how it unfolds. Or also, you can get a copy of my five hour study. The audio study on Revelation, I teach it chronologically, and I go through all of this as well. Hope that helped, Cynthia. I know we're trying to get the information to you so you can teach it properly. Donna Crosby sends in a question, Dad. She says, in our most recent family Bible study, the question of how things work during the millennial reign came up. Specifically, we were studying the late chapters of uh, Ezekiel, and it was noticed that in the John MacArthur Study Bible, it is suggested that there will be animal sacrifices at the temple during the 1,000-year period. Is this true? Is it for Jews only or for all of us? Could you explain more on that? Well, Donna, there will be a reinstitution of the temple sacrifices because in the book of Ezekiel, chapters 40 to 46, we have 202 detailed verses describing that temple called Messiah's temple or the one that Jesus Christ will build. There has never been a temple and or a tabernacle that would fit the description of Ezekiel 40 to 46. And when you come to chapter 45 of Ezekiel, right in the midst of that description, it's the reinstitution of the sacrificial system. Let me remind you something, Donna. Uh, the sacrifices in the past never took away sin. They never completely took care of the sin problem. They simply were a covering. Remember the day, the most important Jewish holy day, Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement or Day of Covering. So they only covered and restored fellowship of the Jewish people who were following the dictates of the Lord. That was their evidence that they were indeed faithful and they were children of God. They were, as we would call it today, born again because they were doing what the Lord told them to do. So they were following the sacrificial system to restore fellowship with God himself. But the sacrificial system, since it did not take away sin in the past, it's certainly not going to do it in the future. And there is an aspect of it that is restoring these sacrifices for the opportunity to cover sin again. I'll explain that in just a moment. But the first reason that this is going to happen is in memorial for what the Lord Jesus Christ did. He was the ultimate sacrifice. When you look at Hebrews chapters 8 and 9, you'll understand that he, Jesus Christ, was the sacrifice. No more goats, no more sheep, no more calves, no more uh, red heifers, etc., etc., but the truth be known is that the Lord now wants the Jewish people to look back and rejoice in what 
they accepted that he was representing or where they failed to, and ultimately later on down the line, they came to know Christ as Lord and Savior. Now, we have the communion service, and that is in, mem- in memorial of what he's done. He told us, First Corinthians chapter 11, uh, do this in remembrance of me. We don't re-crucify Jesus Christ. He doesn't shed his blood. He's not stabbed with a spear in the side again. It's simply in memorial, and that's what the Jews are going to be doing uh, during that thousand-year millennial period of time. But also remember, Donna, there's going to be some that will come out of the tribulation period. We refer to them as tribulation saints. They will have sustained life for the seven-year period of time or from the time they got saved during the seven years of the tribulation, and they will go with physical bodies into the millennial kingdom. They'll be able to reproduce children, for example, Isaiah 65, 20. But they'll have these physical bodies, and they are going to have a sin nature still. You and I have a sin nature. What do we do? We don't go and, and go and reinstitute the sacrificial system right now, but we do claim 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9. If we will confess our sins, he'll be faithful, faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, what is that doing? That is simply restoring fellowship with him. He doesn't want sin around. We restore fellowship by confessing. And that word confess there means to agree with God about our sin. And so that's the same thing that's going to happen uh, during the thousand-year millennial kingdom. Those with physical bodies who go into the millennial kingdom, by the way, the way they sustain life for a thousand years is they eat of the tree of life, Revelation chapter 2 and verse 7, and that's how they're able to sustain life for the thousand years. But the sacrificial system we will be reinstituted. So that's the way it's going to be, Donna. It's God's plan, and he uses it to restore the fellowship of those with physical bodies in the millennial kingdom who have to have that fellowship restored. It will not be for us. We will have resurrected, glorified bodies. And so we can't sin ever again, but those entering with physical bodies from the tribulation into the millennial kingdom, uh, they will have to have this sacrificial system reinstituted. Wow, Jim, you were right. Some great questions from our listeners, not only here in America, but around the world as well. Thank you for sending on those questions, and we'll take an opportunity in the future to get some more Prophecy Q&A. Hey, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we'll take a look at the book right here on Prophecy Today. Just how close are we to the rapture of the church? Do events taking place in the Middle East and around the world have prophetic significance? In his latest book, Sound the Trumpets, Jimmy DeYoung examines these questions and explains just how near the rapture of the church could possibly be. By comparing four trends from prophetic scripture to current events taking place in the world today, Jimmy shows that the stage is set, every actor is in place, and the curtain is about to go up on the end-time scenario set forth in the scriptures. Sound the Trumpets is a must-read for every serious student of Bible prophecy. To order your copy of Jimmy DeYoung's new book, Sound the Trumpets, for only $15, call us today at 8-PROPHECY-8. That's 877-674-3298. Or visit us on the World Wide Web at prophecytoday.com. Call today and make sure to get your copy of Sound the Trumpets. 
Prophecy Today is heard all across the USA on the Prophecy Today radio network, but also it is heard around the world through our website at prophecytoday.com. And Jay, there are many other features on our prophecytoday.com website, like daily news updated out of the Middle East as it pertains to what's happening prophetically. Special reports can be heard right on our website at prophecytoday.com. We have Prophecy Q&A available for you. Questions asked in the past can be answered on the website if you just check it out and go to that particular spot. Prophecy Quiz is available, and parts of our Prophecy Today program, if you should miss any part of it, will be heard the next week right here at prophecytoday.com. And don't forget, you can even email your questions to us for our live radio broadcast. Just go to our website at prophecytoday.com. You'll be amazed, you'll be surprised at what you'll find on our website. Be sure to visit us at prophecytoday.com on the World Wide Web. It's time right now here on Prophecy Today for us to take a look at the book. On Prophecy Today weekend, we focused on the Middle East and the current events happening in that region of the world that may well be leading to an all-out war. David Dolan, for example, our journalist out of Jerusalem, reported that the militaries in Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, and Israel are all on high alert. Colonel Bob McGinnis from Washington, D.C., said that the United States may well get involved in the Syrian civil war. Ken Timmerman, also out of Washington, spoke of the Islamic Nations Summit taking place in Cairo, Egypt, and the visit to Egypt by Iranian President Hamadinejad. Now, by the way, all of these conversations can be listened to by going to our website, prophecytoday.com. Go to PTRN, Prophecy Today Radio Network. Every one of the interviews with our broadcast partners will be there. And let me suggest that you call a friend, tell them about what these men had to say very important information passed along. I have to tell you that these reports are tangible evidence of how there is a move towards an alignment of nations forming in the Middle East. This was foretold by the ancient Jewish prophets, and as you study the prophetic word of God, you can see that that's the case. For example, let me take you to three passages that deal with this alignment of nations. One of them is in Ezekiel 38, another in Daniel 11, but let's begin with Psalm chapter 83. The psalmist here in Psalm 83 is basically offering up a prayer to the Lord. In verse 1 he says, Keep not thou silence, O God, hold not thy peace, and be not still, O God. Then he gives the reason for this request. He said, Thine enemies make a tumult, and they that hate thee have lifted up the head. In other words, the enemies of God himself are also the enemies of the Jewish people because the psalmist, being Jewish, is speaking on behalf of his people. Notice verse 3 of Psalm 83. They have taken crafty counsel against thy people and consulted against thy hidden ones. Now what they're talking about here is coming together in a conference of some type discussing the issue of Israel and discuss all of these issues. May I tell you that this last week in Cairo, the Islamic Summit, 57 member states with their leaders sitting at the tables discussing Israel. Notice what will be said out of one of these meetings of some type. What's found here in verse 4, they will say, Come and let us cut them off from being a nation. 
They're talking about the Jewish state of Israel. And then they say that the name of Israel may be no more in remembrance. Here in this passage of Scripture, there are a couple of nations that are mentioned that are not mentioned in the other list of nations in Ezekiel 38 and Daniel chapter 11. In verse 6, it talks about the Ishmaelites, and that would be Saudi Arabia. Remember, Ishmael went to live in a place, Genesis chapter 25, verse 18, that was then called Arabia. And then in verse 6, it talks about Tyre, and Tyre and Sidon, that would be modern-day Lebanon. As you study God's prophetic word, you see that there will be an alignment of nations that will come against the Jewish people in the last days. Let me take you over to Ezekiel chapter 38. In Ezekiel 38, the ancient Jewish prophet Ezekiel wrote 2,500 years ago about a group of nations that would align themselves against the Jewish state of Israel. Here in verse 2, it talks about the leader, Gog. Now, we do not have any real idea who Gog may be, but then it talks about the land of Magog. Magog. Magog, we know, was a grandson of Noah, Genesis chapter 10, and he trained his family in a new language. He took his family, went into a geographical location, and Genesis chapter 10 verse 5 says that he established a nation where we know that Magog went was north of the Caspian and Black Sea, and that's modern-day Russia. He also mentions in verse 2, Meshach and Tubal. Then in verse 6, Gomer and Tagarma. Those were also grandsons of Noah. And these boys went into the area south of the Caspian and Black Sea. And that's modern-day Turkey. So we see the nations that are going to come together. In verse 5, it mentions Persia. And until 1936, Persia was the name of real estate that we know today as Afghanistan, Pakistan, and Iran. Ethiopia here in this passage is talking about Ethiopia, Somalia, and Sudan, and then Libya is the other state that is mentioned. Now, when we go over to Daniel chapter 11, we there can find out who the first two states will be who will make their move against the Jewish state of Israel. Daniel chapter 11 is the culmination of an unbelievably prophetic passage of Scripture that talks about five personalities. It talks about the Antichrist lastly, starting there in verses 36 through verse 45. When we talk about the Antichrist, he's referred to in the passage as he, his, and him. And in verse 40, it says, at the time of the end, that may well be the time we're living in, I do believe it is, at the time of the end, the king of the south and the king of the north will come against him. The Antichrist, you see, will confirm a peace treaty with Israel and her neighbors. So thus, when you attack Israel, it's like attacking him. That's the him in this passage. King of the North, early on, is defined as modern-day Syria. That's verses 5 and following here in chapter 11. And the King of the South is modern-day Egypt. These nations are going to come against the Jewish state of Israel. In fact, these will be the two nations that will make the first move to attack the Jewish state. The King of the South, Egypt, and the King of the North, Syria. Now, my friend, you know as well as I do that these two nations are on the radar screen. In the north, Syria, in a civil war, Bashar Assad giving orders to his military have already killed some 60,000 Syrians. And they're going to have to strike out. Bashar Assad said if they take him out, he's ordered his military to attack Israel. And, of course, that conference going on, the Islamic Conference, 57 member states in Cairo, Egypt. 
discussing the situation, the problems that they have with the Jewish state of Israel could well be at least the precursor to that passage in Psalm 83, verses 3 and 4, where they come together and have a council meeting and talk about wiping Israel off the face of the earth, that her name be forgotten forever. My dear friend, as I look at these passages of Scripture, Psalm 83, Ezekiel 38, and Daniel chapter 11, and then look at current events in light of what these prophetic passages tell us about the end times, we can see that the stage is indeed set. All of the players are in place, and these prophecies are about to be fulfilled. But let me remind you, before any of these prophecies are fulfilled, the rapture of the church takes place. You know, that rapture, actually, based upon what we've talked about today, could happen at any moment. And having said that, nothing left for me to say, except let's keep looking up until... Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today. (laughs) 